Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Beth Allison Barr as our guest to talk about her new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Beth is a professor of history at Baylor University, and she specializes in medieval history, women's history, and church history. This book explores the development of the idea of biblical womanhood. And it turns out, this is my favorite part, it turns out that biblical womanhood isn't actually biblical. Instead, this belief arose from clearly definable historical moments that are more about human power structures than the message of Christ. And Beth, I have to tell you, I am so excited to be a part of this conversation today. I think um, this idea to trace the history of how this idea of biblical womanhood has come to be just the assumption that most churches have, I think is a fascinating opportunity to dig in and see, like, should we assume this? Where did this idea come from? And to uh, just trace the history of the idea. So tell us a little bit about what motivated you to start this research project. Well, thank you. And I am so happy to be here. It's great talking with you both. Um, So this book is my life. That's really what it is. It's my life. And all my life, I have walked this line uh, between what it means to be an evangelical woman growing up in the Southern Baptist Church and what it means to be called to go into a profession that wields a significant amount of intellectual authority um, over men while I'm living in a church denomination that tells me that I cannot teach teenage boys um, because of this divinely ordained um, difference between women and men. And in fact, that also tells women that if you challenge that, that it means that you are greedy mm. and making a power grab um, and that, you know, that it has to do with the pride of your own heart. And so it turns it into a sin issue on the woman and causes us to neglect our mm. callings, I think. Yeah. So I think, you know, that that is the general um reasoning behind the book, I suppose, but it never really occurred to me to write this book. This isn't something that um, I have ever set out before to do. I am a historian. I'm used to people, you know, the books I've published in the past, you know, if a hundred libraries buys it, I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) You know, it was a bestseller. Um, So I, this is, (laughs) <laughs> this wasn't even, you know, I, my research is medieval sermons. How many people really care about medieval sermons? And so, you know, I know my audience is usually small. So the, the trigger for this book came in 2016, between 2016 and 2018. And it came when my husband, we've been in ministry together for 20 years, and he was fired mm. as youth pastor in a really traumatic way um, over essentially what was caused by us asking to have a woman teach high school Sunday school. And that spiraled both my husband and I really into a couple of years of um, a pretty great trauma. It was pretty hard on us, uh, on our family. Um, it's, you know, only recently have I really begun to feel like myself again. Mm-hmm. And I can kind of, you know, looking back, 
I, I understand how much stress and pressure that time period was for us. Um, so, but I began to work out my personal trauma and the feelings I had by starting a blog series on the anxious bench. I write on Pathios on the anxious bench, um, which is a historical blog by a bunch of um, history professors. And so I began writing about this disconnect that I knew as a historian, that I knew as a student of the Bible, and that I knew as a woman in the evangelical mm. world, this disconnect between how Jesus treats women, um, how history has always regarded and what women have done in history, and then what my church was telling mm. me. And I began to work out this disconnect through a series of blogs on the anxious bench, which eventually led to an editor calling me and saying, have you thought about doing a book? And so that was when the making of biblical womanhood really was born. Mm. That's fantastic. Well, I remember uh, some of those blog posts uh, <laughs> and uh, linking to them and grabbing some paragraphs from them. That yes. Was, those are really, that were really fun, yeah. Well. Okay, I, I have a question. This is, we're so glad to have you here. I mean, Thank I, you. I just think the world of what you're doing and your leadership and your story. And I was telling uh, Laura before that um, this is a, such a, a well-written book. It's I like how it's been edited and put together. And your opening chapter is just stunning. I, I remember reading it when you sent it to me or, or the publisher did for a blurb and I went, whoa, this is really cool. So thank you. So you've done a great job. But something's going on. Amy Bird writes uh, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Kristen Kovas Dumay writes an amazing book on masculinist um, militarist men in evangelicalism. Rachel Den, Rachel Den Hollander spills the beans on Larry Nasser and then writes mm -hmm. a book about her story. Diane Langberg writes a book about spiritual abuse yes. in churches, um, almost all male spiritual abuse. Wade Mullen uh, puts together his research into uh, Something's Not Right. Mm -hmm. My daughter and I write Tove. Beth Moore uh, decides mm -hmm. she's had enough of the Southern Baptist Church mm -hmm. or convention, whatever you want to call it. And now your book is coming out. I remember one time I said, there's three punches in the nose here. Uh, it's more than that. Yeah. There's something yeah, going yeah. on. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on what's going on. I mean, if you don't, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not into prophetic discernments telling people what's going on in the world, but there's something going on here. There's a lot. There is. So um, two things. First of all, I, I want to comment on what you said about my introduction and um you know, what's really true about my introduction is I wrote it in one sitting and I wrote it sitting in on my back porch watching my daughter mm. ride her bike round and around and around. Mm. And it just poured out of me because I thought this is for her. This mm. is for her to have a better Christian world, for her to not have to go through the things that all of these women yeah. that you have just mentioned and all of these things, you know, this is for her. And so I do think that, you know, if you think about the Southern Baptist Church, um, what we are reaping right now is the fruit of the 1970s conservative resurgence. Yeah. 
and that conservative resurgence, which was so horrific and the things, you know, the way that it was done, as well as the, um, the way that they linked, you know, these ideas about women and hierarchy and power in the church and said, if you do not believe these, you are not gospel people. I mean, that's what they did. Yeah. They said that you yeah. can't, you are not Christian if you do not believe these things, um, that your theology is suspect. And they, they made such a hard, rigid line. Um, and then they doled out power to the churches that aligned with it. And so the way that you got success, the way that your church sort of got accolades, the way that you were able to be influential was if you aligned with this rigid hierarchy that was implemented by this power grab in the 1970s. It was all about power. Um, And so I think, you know, the problem, of course, is that when that happened, change is slow. And so, like, I actually lived through the change, you know, the church in the 1980s that I grew up in, um, you know, in the 1980s, most of the women were stay-at-home moms, most of the dads worked, but that wasn't really Christian, that was cultural. But by the 1990s, that had become Christian. And it was because of this moving in of this theology that began to take over and capture churches. Um, And then, of course, by the time we get to the early 2000s, then it is fully entrenched. And we have John Piper and Desiring God at their glory heyday, you know, all of the people um, who are ascribing to this. Um, It's the height of the Blue Bible, um, you know, recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. And then I think, you know, now what we are seeing is the fruit you know, while all these things were going on, what's really happening is men are being taught that women are not are less than they are. And what we see is that these generations of men who have been taught that there's something about them that makes them better than women, um, treating women as less than them. And now all of it's coming out in the news. So, I mean, this is the fruit of the 1970s conservative resurgence. And, and I think there's a, there is a strong resistance, revolution, dissidence about what's going on that um, I, I think this is going to make a huge impact. I mean, I, I'm not a prophet about the impact of Beth Moore leaving, but that's not small potatoes. It's She's not. got 950,000 followers on Twitter. I got 50,000. I think I'm big. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. It's cra- yeah, I can't even yeah. imagine what her notifications look like every day. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I'm just, like Chris and I are just thrilled when she re- she notices ours and responds. Mm-hmm. So we think, oh, I know. Beth Moore. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, look, you're a medieval historian. Beth, I took a course on medieval history in college. <laughs> I was a history major. And... I don't remember hardly a thing about it, but uh, I took a course. We had a maroon textbook. It was a good textbook. Was it Southern? <laughs> was it R.W. Southern, the textbook it you used? Been. It may Yeah, have probably been. was. Probably was. Yeah, and it was. It was. It was a good book. I mean, we learned a lot, and our teacher wasn't a specialist in it at all, but he he went through it for us, and we learned mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't remember enough about it to have done anything, but here's my question. How can obscure people, that's what I'm calling medievals, how can (laughs) obscure people help us today? Here you have on page 44 this statement. In my research, 
I have found that sermons in late medieval England rarely preach the Pauline passages that my students react against. And I read that one. Okay, now, who, who knows this kind of thing? You know, this is rather obscure. Who are the people? All right, so the big question is really, though, how can these obscure people, these medievals that you love, mm-hmm. um, you can name some of them for us. You'll have to tell us who they are. Uh, help us today. <laughs> Yeah. So I think the main thing that, and this is something that has struck me for a very long time. When I first, um, when I first started working on my dissertation research, and it's sort of funny, my advisor was a very strong, um, was a very strong uh, figure. And I, when I got, when I met her for the first time, she let me talk about things for a couple of weeks. And then she looked at me and said, okay, it's time to find a thesis. And she said, go find a thesis topic and come back. And so um, I went, I know that was, so I went and I started looking and I, grown up in the church, religion always interested me. Um, And so I began looking at Middle English texts written by one guy named John Merck, um, who is still one of the main people that I work on. He wrote what became the most popular sermon. So if you think about like the hundred best sermons, you know, that you can buy today, that was John Mark um, in the late, it was his sermons. That everybody was buying and reading and preaching. And so I started reading his sermons and I was totally convinced that here is a 15th century priest who knows nothing about women, who's celibate, whatever. I was like, this is going to be rife with misogyny. It's going to be full of all of these horrible things. And what I found was that it wasn't. And I found that, um, and what I also found, and this is one of very early thing that I noticed, is that I hardly ever saw Paul preached against women. Now, it's not because medieval people didn't know Paul. It's not because medieval theologians didn't know Paul. Um, it was because those passages were not critical for defining what it was to be a woman mm-hmm. in the medieval world or defining, I mean, it wasn't, those, those weren't important to them. It wasn't that patriarchy didn't exist in the medieval world. It's just it was different because the medieval world was different. So what, you know, you ask, what can the medieval Christianity tell us? It can tell us that while patriarchy is a constant in church, in, the, in history, that it is not tied to biblical standards. Um, you know, if this is truly something ordained by God, then it should be consistent in how it is applied and how we find it. But instead, what we find is that the subjugation of women is a constant, but it changes how it is applied, how women are subjugated, changes from time period to place throughout all of history. And so even though the medieval world said women couldn't be priests, um, it wasn't because of Paul, it was because their bodies were flawed and they saw women as, um, as in, uh, as deformed men, essentially. And so, you know, and on, but women could preach because they could escape their bodies. And so there was a loophole in the medieval world. But in the modern world, after the Reformation, this loophole went away because now we began to define women's subjugation based upon their role as wives. Mm-hmm. And um, so a wife is always under the authority of her husband. And this yeah. leads us really to um, modern understanding of complementarianism. Okay, so one of the big, I, I read a book when it came <laughs> out. Guy at San Diego, and I, I saw his name again in your book today. I want to say Gacy, but I don't think that's the right name. 
Um, he wrote a book on women in like the 12th century. Uh, oh, Gary Macy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Macy. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gary Macy. Yeah. And I read this second. book and I thought, I thought, this is amazing. This is a great book. I blogged about it and nothing happened. <laughs> I thought, okay. <laughs> I stuck my neck out here and said, this is a good book. I know nothing about medieval history, maybe. But in your book, we get a lot about Marjorie Kemp. Is that if yeah. that's the way to pronounce it? It is. A, Tell yeah. us who she is and why we should love Marjorie Kemp. Yeah. So Marjorie Kemp, my students, um, my students know how much I love Marjorie Kemp. She's not a woman that I, I think I ever want to sit next to in church um, because she was pretty wild and crazy and very convinced about what God was calling her to do. But she was pretty much an ordinary 15th century woman. She was a, was wealthier than most other women. She had control over her own money. Um, which gave her a lot of power. Uh, but she also felt called by God to be a woman religious. And unfortunately, by the time she got this call, she was already married. So she couldn't, um, she couldn't go and become a nun the way that she wanted to. So she did sort of the next best thing. She became, she, she bought her husband off after having, you know, 14 kids. Um, she bought her husband off and essentially bought him into having a celibate marriage. She said, I'll pay off all your debts and you let me essentially go be free. And then she spent the rest of her life going on pilgrimage, wandering around to all these holy sites, essentially being a street preacher um, and praying for people. Mm -hmm. And she gets arrested more than once on charges of heresy. She always talks her way out of it. And it's really extraordinary. One of the things that I tell in the book is that she is actually confronted um, by the Archbishop of York in his court. You know, she's arrested on, on heresy, brought before him, and he's like, oh, my gosh, what am you know, what am I supposed to do with you? And one and she, you know, she says, well, you know, she, he says, stop preaching, stop preaching to people in my diocese. And she says, no, God called me to do this. I'm not going to stop preaching. And so then a priest runs and quotes Paul at her and says, women, be silent. And she says, that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, a she good, said, that's a good escape. She, she says that doesn't apply to me and um essentially the the this is what's crazy about it is the archbishop is like you're right it's fine you're right <laughs> and he sends her on her way and he actually writes her a letter and says you're not a heretic if anybody accuses you of being a heretic show him this letter whatever just kind of leave and so, I mean, it's crazy because if we think about it, we think about biblical womanhood today, you know, Marjorie did everything that a woman is not supposed to do. And yet she is recognized by the medieval church as being able to do these things. And so, I mean, it shows us that even though there were limits on women in the medieval world that men did not face, um, that the way those limits were applied was different. And that the understand and this and there was also an acceptance that women could preach and teach and that God did speak and use women um, in almost the same ways as men. And so this is one of the things that Gary Macy gets at. And a whole lot of people in you know, the early church and the medieval world, you know, women were movers and shakers of Christianity um, and they actually recognized that. And in fact, by the time we get to the 15th century, we have a lot of this in sermons where preachers are like, yeah, we know that women did all these amazing things <laughs> in the past, but that's not most women. So y'all just need to sit and not, you know, not do that. But they couldn't not recognize that women did do this. And, mm. and so it's just, you know, I, I think the reason that 
most Protestants don't pay attention to this is because most Protestants have a very bad understanding of the medieval Christianity. Um, There's anti-Catholicism within Protestant world. And so we almost think that medieval Christians weren't Mm -hmm. Christians. So who cares how they treated women, except for when we're using the argument that because women couldn't be priests, women can't be preachers. It's funny. That's the only part that we want to remember about medieval Christianity. Um, So and the Pope is the Antichrist. (laughs) Yes, yes, we get a we get a lot of that, and so it's funny how many of our preachers act like popes. Um, yeah. If you kind of think about it, that's something that I've seen. It it strikes mm. me as a historian how much power and spiritual authority that Protestant pastors claim for themselves, yeah. and it, yeah. it always seems similar to me. So well, it is. It is. Um, I really enjoyed what you had to say about Marjorie Kemp. And I, I, I think one of the, for me, one of the um, alarming, learning, um, enlightening, stunning, uh, shocking things about your book was um, how there's a movement from the medieval women. When I, when I read Gary Macy's book, and then I look at yours and I'm thinking, wow, I remember what Gary Macy was saying about what women did in the, mm-hmm. I think it was the 11th and 12th centuries, and all of a sudden with the Reformation. So if you could tell us a little bit about the impact of the Reformation on women, let's say women uh, preaching, teaching, yeah. uh, leading, uh, what changed? What changed yeah. in the Reformation? No, that's a really, that's a really good question. And I think I've you know, told you before, the two chapters that were most critical in this book were really chapter two, which was on Paul, and then the Reformation chapter. Um, And partly these were so critical because these are the ones that I think modern evangelicals are most invested in. We're invested in what the Bible actually says. And then we're also invested in our heroic moment of triumph um, when the Reformation entered in the 16th century and overthrew, uh, you know, the evil Catholic world, restored the Bible, which we don't actually realize that the medieval Bible, medieval people had access to the Bible, um, but we pretend like we don't know that. We don't actually know that. Most Christians don't know that. But um, but we we have this triumphant call of the of the Reformation. And one of the things that we call in the Reformation, and this is something that historians have been arguing about for a long time. And I think the problem is, is that on the one hand, Reformation theology should have set women free. Mm. It really should have, because um, the medieval world, the reason women couldn't lead and do these things was because their bodies were flawed, because we were deformed men, because there was something wrong with us that made us that made us less pure than men and unable to lead. Um, But the Reformation theology said women and men are equal in the sight of Mm. God. And so the natural response to that is, well, women should be able to preach, teach, and lead. And a lot of women actually thought they could um, and tried it. (laughs) Um, But what happened is that this theology, this reformation of theology, did not come with just the Bible. I mean, that's the thing that I think we miss over and over again. We think that we are just reading the Bible and just understanding the Bible for ourselves. But what we don't realize is we always carry things to the Bible. And when the Reformation came, the reformers and the reform and the those after them, the 16th and 17th centuries, they carried the gender hierarchy of the early modern world to the mm. Bible. And it was also a time where work was beginning to change. 
And as work begins to move outside the home, that work begins to be identified with men in an outside public leadership space, and women become more and more defined as in the home. And under, and then of course, Paul just comes in with a vengeance. We see Paul introduced into sermons, introduced into devotional literature, everything. He just explodes because he provides, if you read it with what, carrying a gender hierarchy to the text, then what Paul seems to provide is a divine order for women and men. The reason why women should stay home and should mind the children and should not be involved in leadership is because not men that say so, but because God says so. And so that's really when we see Paul being used in to help buttress Mm -hmm. this gender hierarchy that was constructed outside of the Bible and then carried to the Bible by these reformers. Beth, you've got now, you've got two of the best arguments in the world now for the complementarians. Well, I would say you you knock down one, you knock down their biblical argument. And I think there's plenty of evidence that pushes against that. I've been involved in that little game oh, myself. Yeah. But now you have another argument. Their view is actually the Reformation view, the complementary. And that's just as biblical as the Bible for many of these people. It is. So, And that, to me, this was an alarming feature is that the claim for it to be biblical is actually... Post-medieval, it is Reformation, Enlightenment. It is in that era that that the um, complementarian theory that is now at work right. comes into play. And uh, so I think that's amazing. Now, I, I, I've got all kinds of questions that we don't have space and time for. Um, but I, I want to ask, what, uh, what can men do mm. to support you? And women who are called into teaching and preaching and ministry, and I'm not saying you're a pastor. I don't. I don't think. Are you ordained? Me? No, I do not. Okay. I really don't feel called in that way. But yeah, I support so, women to support who are you and uh, women who are called into ministry to end this problem. Um, how are? I think part of this is how are masculinity and complementarianism and abuse of power related. You know, yeah. I think, I think uh, you would say that complementarianism, if it's not misogynistic, it's close. It's. <laughs> um, I think the only thing that keeps it from being misogynistic is that most men are actually nice people, and um, really, you know, that's this is the thing Russell Moore complains about in his 2006 article, uh, you know, after patriarchy, where he essentially says that most evangelical households are functionally, ega- functionally egalitarian. And, and that's because, you know, the complex, complementarian system doesn't work. Um, you know, if you actually have two adults that are living together and love each other and following God, they work together. I mean, that's just the way it is. They work together. And so that's, um, so, I mean, I think it, it's so strange that we're trying to force something that doesn't need to be forced. Um, so I think, you know, what can men do? I think, I think a big thing, and this is something too, I think about in my own experience, um, when all of this happened to my husband and I, we tried to tell some of our friends. And I mean, I actually remember standing in the foyer of our church and I, I don't cry all that often, but I had tears streaming down my face. 
And I was like, you've got to listen to us that this system that you have created in this church that has put all the power in the hands of the pastor and nobody else can touch him and is shutting women out and putting women in these positions where they are told that their divine calling is to submit to their husbands. I said with no, and they have no other recourse and no other woman in power. There's no one who can help them. I said, this is dangerous, mm -hmm. especially for somebody mm -hmm. who believes in total depravity. <laughs> I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. people, if we are fully sinful people, why do we think we're not going to act sinfully? And yeah. so I was just like, this is a dangerous system. And nobody would mm -hmm. listen. And I mean, I just think it's, it's still to me, I just, I wonder why people won't listen to this dangerous power structure that has been created in churches, which is tied in with this complementarian model um, that's, that men, simply because the way God created them, have authority over everyone else, which also means that some men can have even more authority over others, you know, that's spiritually invested by God. Yeah. This all works together. It also works with yeah. racism. You know, this structure just goes together. And I just don't, understand why people won't listen that this system is wrong that this system doesn't look like jesus at all anything that jesus did so i mean a big thing is is listen listen to women listen listen to women and their and you know the men who are talking with them don't shut them out don't push them out of the church um, another thing is, is a lot of places that we see that are functionally egalitarian, or they, that claim to be egalitarian, they actually don't hire women. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I see this women, it's, it's so frustrating. There's more than 400 Baptist churches in Texas right now that don't have pastors. And there are more than that of women who are ordained in the Baptist denomination in Texas who could go and serve in those churches, but they won't call yeah. women. And so, I mean, you know, uh, we've got to put women in these spaces. Um, we have to listen to them, and then we actually have to put women in these spaces. And sometimes that means men are going to have to give up authority, and they're going to have to let women, um, they're going to have to let go. I mean, it's funny to me that they always accuse women of trying to make power grabs. And I'm like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> you yeah, know, right. you right. won't give up the power. I'm like, you know yeah. what? I don't understand this. Um, so I, I think that is just listening. And, and part of it is just reading these books. I mean, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, Scott, there are so much. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that the system is wrong, that the system is not biblical. And so stop yeah. reading Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and read something else. <laughs> you know, the, um, um, so. I, I, have a, I have a little theory about listening. Um, I think you're absolutely right, is that they need to listen. But I, I find a problem in many churches is that the people who are listening are white men who are listening to women or listening to people complaining about women and then they get to make the decision yes. on whether those women are worthy of being listened to at a deeper level. In other words, are there allegations? Are there complaints? Are there arguments yes. worthy of listening? So I've been telling, um, I, I was with a church that was having a little bit of trouble the other day. And they consulted with me. And I said, you need to form a listening committee 
that is independent of the church power structures. In other words, not pastors, not elders, and it cannot be a majority of white males. Yes. It must have a majority of women and minorities. Mm-hmm. So that, and here's the thing, Laura Terrell can tell you this. I, I learned things from my women students that I would never learn if I hung out with men. Right. They hear things, they'll hear someone say something and I'll think, that's all right. And they'll go, oh no, that was not all right. And I'm going, oh my goodness, what did I miss here? And I've learned so much from my women students and from my African-American students. We don't have as many Latin American students. I'd love to have them. Um, but we, we need to have listening committees that will uh, be a very safe place for people to yeah. come in and register a concern. Let's just call it a concern committee for listening. And they know that it, no one will ever know who it was. It will be safe. They can say what they need to say. And then that group will discern together what needs to be done. And I, I am reasonably certain that that committee will hear different things than the elders who yes. are made up of all white males. Yep. So, no, you're exactly wow. right. This, is, um, this yeah, the... book is so good. <laughs> um, we, we've been, Chris and I have been talking about this book for um, a month or two, and Laura, our daughter, read it, and she couldn't stop talking about it. So we're so glad that you've uh, written it. And Laura here has, um, she either has a question at the mm-hmm. end or she has a segue to the yeah, end. Yeah, I think just as you guys are talking, one of the things I'm thinking about is the importance of acknowledging what women are actually doing. So I think mm-hmm. when you were talking about the medieval church, I was thinking it's the same thing now in so many ways. Women are doing the things. We're just not yes. going to identify what yes. they're doing and call it what it exactly. actually is. We're going to say they're sharing a word or they're directing a program or they're, you yep. know, whatever it is. Um, when it's time to just call it what it is, they're leading. Let's let's say that they're leading and they're pastoring because that's what they're actually doing. Um, right. And I think that's a game changer. I think then, then, you know, this idea that women and men can and should serve alongside of each other in the family of Christ. Right. Um, so I think that that is sort of the goal. I, I hope that someday we can get there. Um, but it is it, it's it's frustrating in so many ways. Um, we talk about this a lot among the women in seminary that we read all these things that are encouraging us in this direction um, on the academic level. We feel like this is a done deal. Right. This is, we've talked about it. We figured it out. We're ready. But what's actually happening um, in real mm-hmm. life and what churches are ready for feels like such a far remove. And sometimes that's, that's tough. Um, but I think for all of us, it's helpful to know that's not God's heart. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, women, have always been preachers, teachers, and leaders, whether or not the ecclesiastical structures recognize them as such. God has always used women. And all you have to do is read the Bible and see how God has always used women. And biblical women do not fit in the mold of biblical womanhood. (laughs) And if we need any more proof than that, there it is. Um, And John Piper said, 
You quote John Piper's in 1984. He said he didn't know what to make of Deborah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what you need to make of him is that your your system doesn't fit. That's exactly it's right. So true. It's exactly yeah. right. Oh, that's so great. So, well, so. thank you so much. I I think that this book will get uh, hopefully a lot of attention, and I think it's something that so many women are eager to read and so eager to connect with and be reminded that God values them. He sees them. He knows them. He appreciates them. The church benefits when women are active and when their yes. gifts are openly recognized. So it's, it's a great reminder. I deeply appreciate that. And I know for all of our listeners, you should rush out and buy this book because I think it's going to be a game changer in so many ways. Um, the book, again, is The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. And our guest has been Beth Allison Barr. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 